It's about seeing somebody do the actual job is the most predictive way of hiring. Anything that you stack on top of seeing somebody do the job is a nice to have. So a really good structured interview is a nice to have. A personality test could be a nice to have. A skills test could be a nice to have. A video interview could be a nice to have. But sitting down and actually saying, you know, we're hiring you to be a bookkeeper. Go do our books from February. There's no better way. Like you're going to immediately know, like does, you know, attention to detail, communication style, like even with a day of work, you get all of these signals and all these, all this feedback that it's really hard for any sort of off the shelf test or assessment, no matter how great or terrible it is to capture this type of information. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort. I have Chris Bakke with me today, the founder of Lasky. Chris and I met through Twitter. I think he's one of the most funny Twitter followers out there, but really been impressed by everything that he's accomplished. And today we talk about his uh, journey through the startup world. He has started and sold multiple companies. Um, he sold to Zillow and Indeed, some companies that we all know. We talk about his latest venture at Lasky and the marketplace that they're building to provide opportunities for small to middle market freelancers and agencies uh, the ability to perform work for some of the most well-known companies in the world. We talk about kind of the psychology of selling your business and things to think about. We talk about, you know, his thoughts on the San Francisco Bay Area, um, what he would do as the CEO of Twitter, and a lot more. Chris is one of the smartest guys I've seen on Twitter. I've really enjoyed following him, getting to know him, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Chris, uh, thank you so much for joining me today an episode. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Can we just start with uh, a little bit of history on kind of who you are and, and your background? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I have been in early stage uh, and I guess a few now public tech companies over the last 12 years. Um, so I started in real estate tech about 12 years ago. Uh, I was working at a small startup based in San Francisco after college. And uh, that company was making CRMs uh, for the uh, for rental brokers in, in major cities. And so we were selling a lot into New York, Chicago, Miami, Boston, um, kind of coming out of the, the last recession in, in 2010, 2011, as a lot of these rental brokers were, um, you know, kind of going nuts in the market. Uh, we were providing software to help them organize their day. Uh, that business was bought in 2012 by Zillow. Um, so I spent about two years running uh, biz dev teams at Zillow, um, focusing a lot on new ventures um, across everything from Zillow rentals to mortgages. And then, uh, yeah, did another real estate startup after that uh, as an early employee um, that went through Y Combinator and raised uh, a few rounds of capital um, called 42 Floors. It was on the commercial uh, real estate side. And so it was an early ops hire there. Eventually became COO of that company, um, had an awesome experience kind of learning all about LoopNet and CoStar and what it was like to compete with them as a small, you know, small company. And then at that company, met two guys who eventually became my, my co-founders for a company called Interviewed uh, that we did in 2015. 
And that is in the HR tech space. And so kind of switched after like six years in, in real estate tech over to the HR tech side and interviewed, became the largest candidate assessment platform in the world, was acquired by Indeed in 2017, spent a couple of years at Indeed uh, working in enterprise product, uh, got to work with some of the, the largest companies in the world and, and really helped them navigate uh, a lot of these like, you know, this COVID crisis and everything. We were shuttling like 30,000 workers from Delta and United into Albertsons and Kroger and Costco, like in a one week period. And so it was a pretty crazy, like talent reshuffling that we were doing there. And then, uh, yeah, just left uh, kind of in the middle of last year and started a new company called Lasky that is a freelance management platform. When you said reshuffling people, you were literally like moving them into roles that they could fulfill at those companies. Yeah. So it was, it was a wildly manual effort. You know, I, I think obviously software and the, the Indeed marketplace uh, can, can help a lot with this. But yeah, I mean, we, it was all hands on deck. Like our CEO at Indeed of a you know, 12,000 person company was in these meetings with companies every single day uh, during March, April, May. Uh, and yeah, we were, like, we were like physically helping companies move like 30,000 flight attendants from Delta. Uh, given that you know we weren't flying during you know March April May very much, uh, like actually moving people into roles, like getting them reskilled, getting them trained up, helping them get jobs at you know all the big like grocery stores, which were having the opposite problem uh, during that period. And so yeah, I mean there were I don't know exactly, but there were like hundreds or thousands of people that basically like switched over into like recruiter mode um, and were like physically like operating as recruiters, even if they were previously you know, the CEO of Indeed or like a product manager at Indeed. Um, it was like an all hands on deck effort to do kind of whatever it took to make sure that, um, you know, really, I think large parts of the economy were still like chugging along during that period. So it was, it was pretty cool to see. Yeah, I've, I've actually thought about that. So when, when a crisis like that hits, is Delta reaching out to Indeed going, hey, we have all these great people that we need to place or is are the grocery stores reaching out saying, hey, we need all these people? Or is it they're both coming at you at the same time and you're just facilitating the move? Yeah, it's it's coming at the same time for the most part. I, and, and we saw it, uh, we saw a lot of early indicators because we handled really like the advertising budget for a lot of these big brands, right? So when you have a big brand who in a normal quarter is spending, you know, five or $10 million on job ads. And all of a sudden that spend basically goes to zero. Like we are no longer hiring and we are investing zero dollars in talent acquisition. Um, you know, you see some of the earliest indicators of that happening toward the end of February, kind of early March of 2020. Um, and, and I think one differentiator from a lot of other companies in the space was that indeed, and also companies like LinkedIn, uh, we just had the enterprise uh, sales staff to handle this. And so like we had people on the ground in these cities who were like close to Delta headquarters, close to, you know, these different companies who were having the active conversations with recruiters and with, you know, talent acquisition at these companies. Um, and yeah, I mean, there were there were a series of meetings where it was it was kind of happening on both sides where, you know, either you see ad budgets going from $20 million to zero or in like Amazon's case, Kroger's case, whatever, you see the number of jobs posted going from we need to hire 30,000 people this quarter to we need to hire 300,000 people this quarter. Uh, and so it's kind of this perfect storm that you see on both sides. And it's just all about like linking up opportunity at that point. Switching a little bit, you've, you've sold two companies and you've gone from kind of like founder or co-founder to employee. 
are you able to handle that really well? Usually founders aren't, aren't, don't do well as, as, as like an employee. Like, how do you think about that? And how has your perspective kind of changed over time, uh, having done it twice? Yeah, uh, I, I guess we could uh, we could get some you know guests in here as like my old bosses at these companies, and they would probably tell you something <laughs> very different. But I think I'm okay with it. Like, I definitely, I think from a focus perspective, I get I get bored really easily. But I think both at Zillow and at Indeed, I came in at really like interesting inflection points in both of these companies. And so at the first, you know, at Zillow. Um, they were just going public. They were literally a couple hundred people. Um, you know, today Zillow is like a thirty-five billion-dollar company or whatever. You know, Indeed was, um, you know, had already been acquired by Recruit, um, which is a huge Japanese holding company, a few years prior to to their acquisition of us. But um, you know, got to work on and with some fantastic acquisitions that came downstream. Uh, so Indeed bought uh, Glassdoor, uh, or Recruit did rather, our parent company. Um, in, in a one point something billion dollar acquisition. And so there were a bunch of these acquisitions that happened after that, that I got to be involved in that I think, you know, it still tapped that part of my brain. Um, but I'm definitely not one of these, these uh, early stage founders where it's like early stage and small company is, is the only life. Like I think I definitely want to build, you know, large, meaningful companies. And I think working at two in some ways, I mean, it helps you see like where you want to go with your own business. I think sometimes as, as like a small business operator, it's kind of hard to know what are the things that we should be doing as we go from, you know, a person in a room to five people in a room to 50 people to, you know, kind of a, a national staff to a global staff. Um, and when you see even, you know, Zillow operating at 300 people or indeed operating from, you know, growing from 4,500 people to 12,000 people in the three years that I was there, you definitely see how the pros do it. Uh, and, and it gives you some interesting data points. But I mean, that said, there's there's way too many meetings in big companies. So I, I do not miss that aspect. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, administrative stuff that you get to avoid when you're when you're running your own thing, for sure. When you take the new role, do you kind of have a full understanding of what they're going to require from you? Or does that kind of change over a three-year period? Like you hear a lot of times, Hey, I sold. I'm now at this position, and th that position flames out quick because you know it just doesn't work out or whatever. Is it because you have the endurance to stay three years, or because you've been given like a clear opportunity and path that you know what to work on? I just feel like it falls in kind of two buckets: people that flame out and people that kind of thrive for that year or two, and then they're they're out. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. It's something that I've never really talked about, but I, I think it, it's all about the acquirer, and and I also think you know the the acquired company in terms of how willing and and kind of able we are to work with each other. I mean, I will say like at the first company that I was at that was that was bought by by Zillow, I, I think the the actual product integration was was quite a bit weaker. Like we were kind of we were force fitting things a little bit on both sides, and interestingly. With my first company selling to Zillow and my my second company selling to Indeed, in both cases, we were the second acquisition ever at these like pretty large companies. And so they only really had like a single data point on, hey, this is, you know, this is what success looks like and this is what we should do with the team. I will say I, I think if you're selling a company to you know, Google or Microsoft, like they are doing two acquisitions a day in some cases, like especially in this environment. So they have this entire infrastructure of like hundreds of people that are there to help you like get set up with benefits and like learn the new systems and navigate the new companies. Um, and like the, the M&A teams at these like large existing companies are massive. 
we didn't have that. And, and I think in some in some cases, we definitely had internal champions on the acquirer side, which made it super easy, especially at Indeed, I think, to get like assimilated. My boss, who is the, the chief product officer, he worked on our whole deal. He met with us regularly. You know, he was meeting with my co-founders, everybody on our team for like the first year. And so that was that was a lot easier. I think in that case, I I was working on the product that we sold to Indeed for the first year and a half that I was there. And then the second year and a half, I, I switched over to the enterprise product side. And that was just for me, it was something that I was I was like mentally exhausted of like thinking about candidate assessments and candidate testing every day for so many years. It was just like not a true passion of mine. I think like the hiring space overall is definitely a passion, but it was this it was this like a minor detail in the overall scheme of hiring people and getting hired and placing people and growing companies. And so um, our our bosses were super understanding that you know you you kind of burn out after so many years, especially of like deep focused work. Um, and so they they let me kind of broaden my role to to just like enterprise software stuff in general. And and we'll get into kind of your involvement with YC uh, kind of later in the conversation. But maybe one more question on this topic. You've sold two companies to ultimately companies that have become huge. Uh, you've kind of said that you've learned a lot from what it's like to be on their side of the table. Are there questions that you wished or that if you were to sell Lasky, that you'll be asking the acquirer that you maybe didn't in deals one and two, having gone through this dance a few times to kind of understand what's go- what it's going to be like on the other side? Yeah, I, I think it, it definitely, you get more leverage maybe to ask those questions, I presume, as as time goes on, right? You probably, you care a lot more about making sure that the fit is really good on deals two and three. And now, you know, there's plenty of people that are, you know, have exited their fourth company. It's like, you, you just, you have a lot of leverage. You have your own personal capital where like, it maybe doesn't matter as much as, as making your first million bucks or whatever, or making your investors their first million bucks. And um, you know, I'm, I'm sure, and and from everything that I've heard on, on kind of like the GP side of real estate, I think that there's a lot of similarities there. It's like your first few deals, you know, you're, you're always focused on investor returns and always focused on, you know, making good deals. But I think, um, at least for me, I, I think, you know, from selling companies, you, uh, it's, it's very nerve wracking, right? The, the first and second time, I mean, it's always nerve wracking, but I think right now, you know, with last gates, it's so early, but I think, you know, down the road, there, there were ever a partnership that were to be developed there. Like at Indeed, we cared a lot about strengthening that partnership actually for years before we sold. So Indeed came on as an investor first, uh, then they became a customer of ours, and then they became an acquirer. And that was actually perfect. Like I, I think it's it's very easy. It's almost like hiring. It's very easy for both sides to get dolled up and present their best selves. But if you've worked with somebody for years, like you've seen some stuff and so and they've seen some stuff and and it just makes it a lot easier to go okay this actually would be a good partner we've seen the good we've seen the bad we understand what we're getting into mutually and so i would definitely you know push for something like that all right so covid hits you spend the first couple of months helping airline people go into grocery stores and all the while you've got some idea in the back of your head to start uh lasky uh how did the idea come about and how do you describe what y'all do yeah. Uh, so at Indeed, there were different ways that we were looking at this problem. But ultimately, uh, there's this kind of interesting process within you know a larger company like that of, of over 10,000 people where you look at our the number the sheer number of contractors and freelancers that you know that company was working with. It's it's measured in the thousands of people, 
you know, without getting too much into the numbers behind that, you can imagine that, you know, having part-time and full-time freelancers and contractors in and out of the business is, is huge annual spend, right? And that's for one company. And so when we looked at how indeed as employees were kind of engaging with this, you know, external talent, we found that the process is pretty broken. Like every every manager, every director or VP or, or member of the C-suite uh, you know, they would have their own preferred vendors. They would have platforms that they've used in the past. We would tend to use the same people over and over. But there were some really good things that I think we did at Indeed. Like we had centralized procurement. We had this team, uh, Scaled Ops, that was helping managers and directors and VPs and above um, actually like create tickets to say, hey, you know, we have this internal tool that needs to be built and I need 20 additional, you know, React developers to like help build this internal tool, right? Between the months of September and December. And I have a $300,000 budget and they have to work in these time zones. And there was, you know, this kind of internal procurement effort that was just for Indeed employees um, that was actually very, very good. And so we never really thought about, you know, hiring full-time on my team was always a massive challenge, but um, when it came to using freelancers, it was always this very like flexible thing where we had good processes in place. And when we started doing customer development for this last year, we realized that uh, you know the median large company does not have a great process in place. Like this is a very broken industry in terms of you have generally like low cost, low skill platforms on one side, ranging like Fiverr and Upwork and some of these solutions. And then on the other side, you have really big, clunky legacy providers that are actually quite skilled at what they do in many cases, but extremely expensive, cost prohibitive to, to many projects and companies like Accenture, Bain, McKinsey. And the long tail in the middle, A, is massive. It's like hundreds of billions of dollars to spend kind of in that mid-market that nobody's really cracked. And B, it's extremely tough if you are, let's say, the founder of a four-person graphic design firm or a two-person commercial photography studio to ever get a contract with Microsoft or Google or Walmart or something like that. And so what we're building is an enterprise uh, services platform that we sell like SaaS into mid-market and large companies. And it allows these, uh, these managers and these VPs to access kind of these vetted pools of talent that we've pulled together. And the goal is to make everything super seamless on both sides. Like, as a agency owner or as a small business owner or as an individual freelancer, you know, your ability to get that big contract with Walmart will never come because you have to jump through security hoops and procurement hoops and you know, you have to get background checked and like all this stuff every single time you do a deal. So it's just not worth doing deals with that company. And so on our platform, the goal is that you can do all that stuff once and then we kind of become your distribution engine to get into all these different companies and help you, you know, sell your services and get paid on time. I love it, man. How long does it take to get approved as a vendor and, and how do people find out that they're a company that you're looking to have on the platform? We're just kind of starting with this, but and kind of going through the first few motions with with larger companies now. So right now, I think pretty typically... Um, we really started this doing customer development for it at the end of 2020, started the company, uh, you know, uh, in, in January, essentially. And so um, going through the first few motions with larger companies. But, you know, we expect in some cases, I mean, look, to get into Fortune 500, like we expect this fully to be a year long process on our end. But I think once you get approved, once you get the, you know, the MSA and kind of all those documents in place, 
our ability to then help that company pick and choose the right, you know, subcontractors, the right vendors becomes, you know, infinitely easy. And so it's, it's a really hard problem to solve. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of competition in the space, but I think we're, we're attacking it from a unique angle here. Um, and so right now we've been focusing on a ton of series A, series B kind of venture backed companies where in many places they have a process in place. They have security audits, they have background checks, they have some of these like compliance related issues for their freelancers, for their agencies, for their vendors. And we're kind of facilitating that right now with, with individual freelancers and agencies. And then the hope is that as we, you know, kind of grow and move up the stack, we get to bigger and bigger companies. And so, you know, at, at interviewed at our last company, we were an enterprise software as a service company, although nobody's ever heard of our first 50 customers, right? Like you kind of start small, you prototype with them, you grow with them, you get a little bit of revenue. You understand how to make that work with a you know Series B company that's ultimately going to be way more flexible than Ford. <laughs> and then once you nail that, you go, okay, we're going to go to a you know Series D company or to like a mid-market insurance company, and you kind of are working your way up that stack to eventually, hopefully by year two and three, you know, be selling into the Wells Fargo's and the you know the big oil and gas companies, big insurers, the big you know, financial services companies that can actually spend, you know, a million dollars on SaaS. And I, I'm trying, I'm trying to ask this question the right way, but having been at Indeed and now what you're doing at Lasky, how many times do companies end up like hiring full-time people for things that ultimately should just be like a freelance project? And then kind of how is the world reshifting to where companies are learning really quickly? Like we don't need a thousand employees. We need like 200 and 800 freelancers. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's something that we think about a lot, and I I think the it's it's hard to quantify, but it's definitely it's certainly common, right? I mean, it's it's classic. I mean, I think anybody that's hired maybe more than a dozen people at their current company can look around and say, you know, we 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 probably got something wrong here. Like, you, you know, I think it can happen very early, where it's like, you know, there's just there's redundancy, or there's like a single thing. Like at an early stage company, it's just. You know, it's it's almost unavoidable that you're changing direction really fast, and so prototyping and doing things like design and doing things like engineering work by augmenting your existing team and kind of moving people in that direction, so that if you need to really quickly scale from you know two developers to eight or back from eight to two, which happens all the time, you know, in our world, it's it's uh, it's super easy. And, and I think at large companies, it's you know it's it's almost impossible to say only having worked at you know two larger companies, but, um, you know, it's certainly a pain point. And I, and I do think that the, the latter part of your question, right, companies are reevaluating how they're using full-time talent. And um, part of it is, is just like, I think it's becoming like a skill set match, but also a work-life balance and a happiness match. Like before, uh, it, was, it was almost like untenable, like just a couple decades ago that people would be um, you know, making hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars, like, you know, writing books on like some very rare subject that they're a subject matter expert at and like using the internet to distribute this. Like even in 1990, like I, I can't imagine that many people were like ahead of this trend. And so like you're making $16 million a year as like a YouTube creator. Uh, and so it's like all of this, I, I think this explosion of, you know, part-time creative work has has also led the way for, a lot of productized services to be extremely successful over the last 10 years, which is like, hey, if you're a small company, maybe you don't need a full-time admin, 
but we have this like fractional admin service where you can get an awesome admin and only pay for, you know, 20 hours a week of their time. And they can be doing 20 hours a week of stuff that's, you know, different than being an admin or working at a second company, you know, fractionalized CFO service. All of these things have kind of have sprouted up. And now I think it's our job where it's really hard to find these services. You know, your fractional, you know, chief marketing officer is a service, your CFO is a service, bookkeeper is a service. How do you know if they're good? How can you, how do you know if you can trust them? And so that's the second part of what we're doing is like discovery, you know, transparency into ratings, reviews, what other companies are using these guys. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a hard problem. But I think the answer, what we're betting on is that there's a lot of full-time jobs that both the worker and the employer would be a lot happier if this was a, a more casual relationship at the end of the day. Yeah, it's amazing to me how many uh, people want to be full-time purely because of more like the benefit stack than they actually want to work full-time at the company. They just need health insurance and, you know, 401k or whatever. The uh, The other thing I, I was going to ask was, how do you overcome the issue of if we do move to a more freelance world where like, I'm not hiring one of your people through the website and my direct competitor is also hiring that person and this freelancer is kind of like, who am I loyal to? I, you know, I'm doing marketing for them and for them. And I kind of put myself in this weird position. Yeah, uh, it's interesting to think about. I mean, I think one of the things, one of the things when we look at a lot of these existing platforms that have become, you know, wildly successful, but you look at Fiverr, for example, which I think is like a $10 billion market cap company plus today, you know, your the level of transparency around who these people actually are, people don't have to use real names, right? And so people can literally use avatars to deliver pretty expensive work on Fiverr today. Um, and and I, I can see the argument for that in a lot of cases. But I also think like even at Indeed, you know, getting the IP agreements and NDAs and like all of this paperwork in, in place to hopefully ensure that this isn't happening in the first place. And, and I think in some cases, like we've even had freelancers flag opportunities of saying, hey, I have a you know, a non-competer. I just don't feel comfortable kind of work, working with this, you know, bottling company. I already work for a major bottling company, whatever it may be. Um, I think in some cases, it's up to the employer to say how strict do they want to be with these things? Or, or, you know, I think also that stuff can hopefully be measured in our platform to say, look, you know, you are, you have an active contract with Coca-Cola. Um, so maybe we aren't assigning you into a project with Pepsi. Right now, all of that, it's still very, very much kind of the Wild West uh, between the freelancer in terms of how much they want to disclose, you know, um, how likely are they to get sued? How likely is it to infringe on, you know, one employer's IP? So I think it's a, it's a, it's a good question. And, and we definitely don't have all the answers there. But I, I would hope that, you know, part of this platform is bringing a little bit more uh, structure to the chaos, which is really like as an independent contractor, it is up to you and it should be up to you in terms of how you know who you get to work with but um and i think in a lot of cases individual freelancers their their knowledge set is so niche that it's almost unavoidable like i'll give you one example which is that at indeed i had 16 industrial organizational psychologists on my team so in all of America, to my knowledge, I think that there are about 400 people who have a master's degree or a PhD in industrial organizational psychology. And I had 16 of them on my team because we were dealing with like job fit and matching, right? And so it made sense that we had to hire a lot of these. But in many cases, we would also contract with industrial organizational psychologists. And it doesn't make sense for me to say, look, you know, your work around 
you know, career matching and job matching has to be specific to Indeed. And you can never take this knowledge and give it to another job board. Because if I did that, like, they would never work again. <laughs> like, their, their knowledge set, their skill set is so tightly mapped. Like, they got a PhD in matching people to jobs. And so if the major players in the game are like LinkedIn, Indeed, you know, ZipRecruiter, there's only so many places that you can ever freelance or ever work full time if you have that background. And so I think in our case, we were, we were very like, yeah, specifically confidential about aspects of our business, but not necessarily like key workflows and stuff like that. Like we understood that all of that kind of had to be transferable in, in their case. Do you believe in personality testing and things like culture index or uh, Enneagram or any of that in, in hiring these type of folks? I think that there is a place for it. I think the um, without naming anyone specifically, I mean, I think in, in all cases, this isn't specific to you know, Enneagram or personality testing broadly. Um, in terms of like, does it make sense? Uh, I, I think the answer is like, yes, it often can. And there are ways to do um, this type of testing where it can be predictive of, of, of fit and happiness and performance and all this kind of stuff. The key that I've seen is that there are a lot of startups that are operating in this space and um, they have no validation whatsoever. And so when you think about validation, it's like, you know, most of these legacy firms have had to do some pretty rigorous testing around you know, if you're doing personality-based hiring or, or um, you know, even skills-based hiring, are my questions or are the results of this assessment um, predictive of future performance? And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Like, you know, how does the person get promoted repeatedly after getting hired or do they get fired after two weeks, right? Like, just because you've made a hire doesn't mean that, you know, the thing is predictive. And so, um, you know, I think my my broad concern with the space, which is not limited to personality, I think it's just broad across all assessment, is that, you know, to do this well, you have to operate for a really long time and have a lot of these, you know, what they call uh, like criterion-based studies kind of like post-hire to assess like, you know, is this actually mutually working out? Um, is the person a star performer? Are they rising faster than their peers? Do they like their job? Does the employer like working with them? And it, the, it's a long-winded answer, but I think it's messy, right? I mean, you look at a lot of these things and whether it's attributed to the person's background or their education or their personality or their skills, it all gets pretty convoluted. But I, I think to answer your question, yeah, I mean, I think if um, there's, there's, there's a good shot that I think a lot of these providers have to provide more insight into like, will we enjoy working together if you hire me? Uh, and I think that that's super valuable. Well, you had a you had a thread that actually got um, a lot. All your threads are popular, so I'm not just going to single this one out. But uh, the one you posted the other day, I'm like, I can't believe, and, and I'm in this camp that people make these life decisions off like two one hour interviews and like a lunch date. And you were saying, hey, you know, schedule something for one to three days. I, my question is like, dive a little deeper. How would you kind of lay that out? And if somebody here's listening that hires people is like, how, how should they think about those one to three days to work on a project with somebody before hiring them? Yeah. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is one of my favorites and, and I'd, I'd take it a step further, which is there's, there's the advice that, um, 
you know, we, we give, which is like, I love saying it, but I don't actually practice it. And then there's like this side of the spectrum, which is actually, and, and, I, and I, I was waiting for somebody to call me out on that thread, but I, I had actually many of my current and former employees who have hired jump in on that thread. And they reminded me of like what their project was like, which is kind of fun over the years. So I'll take it a step further, which is that at any company I've run, I have never hired somebody without doing this. And I think what that does is it is it um, it alleviates the pain point of the like oh but like I don't does this work for all roles does this work like you know again I have hired salespeople I've hired customer support I've hired a lot of engineers I've hired a lot of product people um, you know I've hired HR I've hired finance I've hired all these different roles super niche roles like sixteen industrial organizational psychologists and statisticians and stuff like that and the answer is like you have like if it's hard for you to scope what a one or two or three day project would look like what i've found is it's actually in some cases it means it's going to be a rough onboarding experience because it means that you have like a need as a business owner that you're trying to scratch but you don't know exactly what the person would be doing and so i think that the key with these like you know bringing somebody on and saying hey i think you're awesome and i'm pretty sure i want to hire you and you think you want to work here, but like, let's put that to the test for a day or two days. I think two days is like a really good sweet spot where, you know, a lot of the questions on this thread are like, hey, what if you get people who just can't take two days off? I think the key to this is you have to pay people. This is this is like a joke if you don't pay people. They are giving up their time. They're giving up vacation time. They're giving up sick days, whatever. Like, I think the answer is like anybody can make this work if you're willing to make it work as an employer. I've had plenty of people where it's like, look, I'm at an entry-level job as like a graphic designer. I'm 22. I don't really want to use sick days. I'm not going to burn my holiday, even if you're going to pay me a ton of money to do this two-day project, but I'll happily give you a weekend, right? So I think it's about working with people. You know, if, if people are, um, if they're not willing to take the time off, you can adjust and, and do it kind of asynchronously over a weekend. If people have, you know, outside responsibilities, like childcare responsibilities, like break it up and do four half days. Like it, it doesn't actually matter exactly how it's structured. I think in my experience, it's about seeing somebody do the actual job is the most predictive way of hiring. Anything that you stack on top of seeing somebody do the job is a nice to have. So a really good structured interview is a nice to have. A personality test could be a nice to have. A skills test could be a nice to have. A video interview could be a nice to have. But sitting down and actually saying, you know, we're hiring you to be a bookkeeper. Go do our books from February. There's no better way. Like, you're going to immediately know, like, does, you know, attention to detail, communication style, like, even with a day of work, you get all of these signals and all these, all this feedback that it's really hard for any sort of off-the-shelf test or assessment, no matter how great or terrible it is, to capture this type of information. And do you, like, let's just say you were down to three candidates and you were going to do that. Would you give each candidate the same two days worth of work? Or would you just give them whatever was going on during those two days that was actually happening in the course of business? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd be curious to see. I mean, if um, if anyone listening, you know, has ideas and if they've done it differently, I, I think for me to just save myself time, I, I like to try to reuse the same project because I think it's really helpful to have points of comparison. It's also, I mean, as, as you know, it's like if, if you're running a business, the reality of having to custom scope a project for every, every person just gets to be a little bit tedious. And so it, it, it is a forcing function. Again, it, it does force you if it's the first time that you've ever hired you know, a bookkeeper or an accountant, 
you're going to have to come up with some way to give an accounting test. And that can be really tough because, you know, my background's not in accounting. Uh, my background's not in computer science even. And so if I'm hiring an engineer for the first time, how do I know what a good engineer even looks like? But I think that answering those questions before the candidate actually comes in and before they are your employee and you're hoping that you got it right, you know, going to experts, asking them what they should be looking for, going to like the best bookkeeper that you know and asking for like what would be a good one day project that I could give somebody. I mean, for sure, like this is all about tapping your network, tapping people who you know are good at this job and, and saying, what does good actually look like? And so I, I think that that's definitely, uh, that's, that's definitely a key part of it. I have two more questions kind of as it relates to Lasky. And I know you're working with all different types of companies across different industries, but has there been anything unique kind of in this COVID era where everybody is kind of remote and probably hiring more freelancers than ever before? Just some of the requested services that um, I know in your website, you have like, if we don't have this, submit it and we'll see if we can get it. Anything come across your desk that's like, damn, I can't believe people are asking for this. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we we get we've been getting quite a few. We opened up this ability to submit projects, and it's kind of as we get to different categories because we're only a couple months in. We'll just take unstructured projects and do some some hand matching on the back on the back end. I mean, um, one related to this that's kind of interesting that we've gotten many times is podcast editing. Right? There's like there's good tools for recording a podcast, but a lot of small businesses have, you know, recently gotten into podcasting or interestingly, one that's come up, you know, maybe twice is um, companies are just starting to get really into internal podcasting, right? This isn't going to go on Apple. This isn't going to go on Spotify. Nobody's going to hear it, but it's a really compelling way for the senior leadership team to record a message, not have to have 20 or 50 or 100 people show up to a synchronous Zoom call. And then, you know, they don't have internal editing. So I think that that's been one that I've been you know, I guess it's expected, but it's kind of surprising. I don't think that this like high volume um, role would have existed even, you know, two or three years ago. And now I think it's it's very common, even in a 50 person company that, you know, everyone on the management team's doing a little podcast snippet every week. And there's a few hours of editing work to, to make it perfect. I think one that we that we get a lot, which is also maybe not super surprising, um, but we have gotten a lot of like, pretty aggressive AI-related roles, but the AI-related roles are like people to feed AI interesting information. <laughs> so this is almost like a hybrid of data entry and research, which is like, hey, we're developing AI that does X. But in order to do X, we need like millions of examples of X, right? And so if it's like, oh, we have this like AI copywriting service that serves the medical community, well, we need to like feed this AI like medical journals. And you can't just Google like medical journal. Like you actually need to like download PDFs and like format them in this way and like remove these title pages and stuff. And uh, we've actually like in the last week, we've seen two of those projects get posted, which I thought was pretty cool. Interesting. Yeah, I've done 115 episodes. I think we've had 15 new podcasts or something like that started. And then we actually have three big companies that now run an internal podcast. That's how they talk to their company. Yeah, it's happening kind of in real in real time. It's yeah. funny that you got asked that. And then Johnny, who's my guy, he started a year and a half or two years ago. It was 150 bucks an episode to edit. And he's now getting five to 700 bucks an episode. One, he's really good at it. But two, people are realizing really quick, like there ain't a lot of people that could do this really well. And the quality of the audio. Yeah, that's matters. awesome. All right, last question on Lasky. I, in doing some research, I think 
make sure I read this right, but you've this is the third time you founded a company or been involved with kind of your co-founding team. Is that right? I think technically it's it's the fourth because we all worked together at a commercial real estate startup back in like 2013, 2014. We left in 2015 to start Interviewed, which was like our second company together, but first time starting a company together. Uh, we got bought by Indeed. We all worked at Indeed. Um, and actually, our our uh, my co-founder and I were the first people on our entire team post-acquisition after three years to leave Indeed. So the entire rest of the team is still there. Um, except for uh, our founding engineer who came over uh, with us. So this is technically like second time starting a company together, but we have worked at, uh, this is our fourth company across the last uh, eight years, I guess. And when you guys start the next company, is it just kind of assumed, hey, this is what you're doing, this is what I'm doing? Obviously, y'all have grown and become more talented over time. Like, how do you kind of keep it all together to where you're not kind of fighting for a position or a role or something each time you start? Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, at our at our last company, we we had a third co-founder who uh, went on and created. He's had like this itch that he's wanted to scratch around insurance for small landlords. Actually, so he started a company called uh, Steadily.com that I that I backed as an angel um, after he left Indeed. And so we had three co-founders at the last company. We have two today: myself and Daniel. And with three, it is a very different dynamic than two. I mean, our our skill sets are pretty broad. Like I could do a little bit of marketing. I can do some product stuff. I'm pretty good at enterprise sales. Um, I can handle support tickets in the early days. Like whatever needs to be done, you know, they can handle some sales. Although engineering might they might be stronger at it. So there is this balance. I think if you're working together for the first time, now it definitely clicks in where it's kind of like divide and conquer. We each know what we're working on. We each know what you know. I'm terrible at that. Daniel's awesome at, or you know, vice versa. And so. Uh, it's definitely easier. I mean, you've, you've seen the data points over eight years. And so you, you kind of get to know that, like, I think the other piece is, is uh, you know, we talk a little bit about, uh, you know, this kind of concept of zone of genius, which is like, uh, there's a lot of stuff that I can do, but I hate doing it. And there's stuff that Daniel can do, but he hates doing it. And we may even be really good at that stuff. But it doesn't bring us it doesn't bring us joy. It doesn't like motivate us to keep doing this. And so I think one thing that we've seen very real, like firsthand from running a company together for five years for this was, uh, you know, you burn out. And so if you're constantly working, you know, a month, who cares? But if for years you're working on something that the people around you go, oh, wow, Chris, you're really good at this. And you go, yeah, yeah, I, I get that I'm like top 10% at doing this thing, whether that's sales or support or marketing or writing code, uh, but you hate doing it, like you're going to burn out. And so I think with venture backed companies, you know, you're, you're really, you're in this for a long haul, five, 10, 15 years, ideally. And so you need to be focusing pretty early on getting yourself leverage. And, uh, and that leverage can come in a lot of different ways, hiring full time, you know, using our own freelancers, shifting job responsibilities around for yourself. But um, I think not enough kind of first time founders think about that. And it's something that, you know, I've seen Many, many companies that I've angel invested in, it's not that the market sucks. It's not that the idea is bad. It's that the founders lose, lose motivation. And so it's really important that from, you know, as early as possible, knowing that for the first year or two, you know, everybody has to do stuff to keep the company afloat that you may not love. But as fast as humanly possible, I think working on stuff that brings you joy and hiring for all of the rest is, is really critical. And do you kind of go into each one kind of knowing this is what I love, this is what I don't love, 
and you're and you kind of know what's going, what you're delegating first, or do you treat a lot each situation kind of as like I know what I love and don't love, but there could be things that change as we go because this is a new company. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know the, the 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 lessons here are actually even more. I know what I love doing. I know what I want to delegate, which I think we were actually pretty good the first time around. Interestingly, we were pretty bad at scaling ourselves around the things that we loved. So I'll give you an example, which is like, um, I love talking to customers. I love selling things. And so at interviewed at our first company, uh, I got to the first two, two and a half million dollars of ARR myself before I ever hired our first salesperson. So on the one hand, it's like, whoa, that's really impressive. It made the company profitable. It, like, it was great in a lot of ways. It was awesome for customer development. Like, I deeply understood who our customers were. Uh, I would tell that to really good VCs and really good investors, and they would kind of be like, yeah, like you should have scaled this at 500,000 ARR. Like, you have gone like five times further than we recommend like a single founder like ever goes like i was just bad about giving it up like i love doing it i love you know jamming with customers i love like hearing the complaints i loved hearing why our customers were better than us or worse than us and like figuring out how to you know how to make the software work and so it was bad like it was it was actually it, it seemed like such a positive and it was something that i you know i bragged about a lot at the time and i still brag about and there's articles about like how i did this and stuff but like I think actually that it's probably a net negative. Like if we had started hiring for sales a year or a year and a half before when we did, um, you know, the company very well may have grown, should have grown a, a whole lot faster than it did. And it, you know, it ended up being a success story. But um, I think that there's little stuff like that where it's like just because you love doing something as the CEO or as the founder uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you should. Like having your time be high leverage if you're trying to grow, you know, a business really aggressively. Uh, is something that we think about too. Did, was somebody telling you along the way, hey, stop selling, pass this off, and you just weren't listening? Or at that time, you just weren't getting that advice and you just kind of were kept going? Yeah, I think this is this is kind of the uh, the lesson learned from, you know, first or second time around that you hopefully that you get right a third time. Uh, yeah, nobody, nobody said this. I mean, it was like, and I, and I think honestly, it was it was probably the way that we were like writing our investor updates. Like, you know, we had raised um, a two million dollar seed round at at interviewed, and so we had the we had the capital, we had the money to go hire sales. It wasn't that; it was that I don't know. We were we were too slow to hire. We were deliberately stingy, which again was good in a lot of ways, probably bad in others. And so I think, like I don't know, like my take, I've I've asked one of our investors, and I think you know his take was kind of like, look, I was reading these investor updates, being like. Oh, awesome. You guys added like, you know, uh, another $100,000 of like new, net new ARR to the business this month. Like, that's awesome. I just assumed you had a small sales team doing this. Like, I didn't realize you were still doing founder-led sales. <laughs> um, and so I think that there's a lot of stuff there where it's like, now that we've worked with investors for a long time, we get to know them, they get to know us. We get, we just see data points around like, look, if you're, if you're going to play the game of being a venture-backed company, uh, you have to learn how to leverage yourself, and I think that that was a you know that was an area of weakness for me and 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 for Daniel too. I think on some of the engineering and and customer support stuff that that he was doing uh, at interviewed, it just wasn't sustainable, and we should have hired you know a year prior to to when we did for some of these roles. Let's move into just kind of the venture world and your uh, what you do with YC, and you just said play the game of being a venture back company. What is the game of being a venture back company? Well, I think. 
it's it's all trade-offs. I mean, I think at our you know at our last company, we between raising our seed uh, and selling the company, you know, we we returned 10x in in 18 months to our seed investors, which is good, not great. Like, I mean, it sounds crazy. Like that sounds like, oh my gosh, this is a massive success story. But at the end of the day, building, you know, building a, a, a sub, you know, $100 million exit in, in uh, eight, 18 months or two years or whatever it was, is great. And everybody on our team made lots of money, our investors all made money. And so they're happy about that. But I think if you're venture investing, you're playing a very different game than you know investing in the market or investing in real estate. And so it comes along with expectations. Like I, I think and hope, obviously, that is a much better outcome than a 2x return or a 0x return or whatever it is. But the more time I spend in the space and you look at what makes a company successful, I think I'm increasingly, I'm increasingly aware that it, in a lot of cases, it just, it's pure time in market. And so if you're even if you're moving incredibly fast, if you're only selling a product and building a product for two years before you sell, I mean, look, there's there's all sorts of things that can happen. Um, but I think as first time founders, uh, it's it's easy and it's natural to say, I want this to be a success no matter what. I don't really care what that success looks like. Like I just want to put money in my pocket. I want to put money in our investors' pockets. I want to put money in my employees' pockets. And you know, if what we're shooting for is you know fifty million dollars in in you know in terms of exit versus you know a billion dollars, um, that's fine, and, and you know that's what we did at, at interviewed. But uh, I think now with Lasky, it's you know we're just setting our sights a lot higher. And when I look at you know Y Combinator companies and um, and and other companies that are doing this game really well, they're just consistently performing every single year for many 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 years, and they're allowing you know. Their own compounding of, you know, customer referrals and and happy customers and growing NPS and uh, growing margins and a team that's worked together for more than like a few days, like they're <laughs> they're getting all these like collective advantages every additional month that they're in the market, uh, and and I think especially in like enterprise software, a lot of the incumbents, uh, you are starting to see them slow. I mean, this is not a um, you know, there's not a fixed uh, there's not a fixed pie that we're all going after. The pie is certainly growing a lot, but yeah, I mean, you're you're looking at a lot of these incumbents starting to slow quite a bit, uh, which is great. I mean, it means that YC companies, for example, are not only uh, growing the overall market and leaning into growing markets. In many cases, they're actually like chipping away at Oracle and SAP and like some of these huge providers, which is crazy that you can do that in ten years. But it's it's something that I think is worth doing. When you sold that first company, did you initially go into it saying like, we're going to be the next $10 billion company? Or did you kind of know the goal was to get in and out in two years? Yeah, I think I think if we're honest, we, um, we it, it, the, the motivation was probably a little bit different. We, we started the company really fast. We didn't take into consideration uh, market sizing. It was an idea that we had as employees at our previous company. We entered a hackathon on a Friday. We started building this. We had never written any code for it. We started building this on a Friday. On Saturday, we went up against all these other like true startups, and we won this hackathon competition. And then by Sunday, we had a couple pretty great investors who were saying, hey, where do we wire this $150,000 that you guys just won? And we were saying, like, we don't actually have a company, right? 
And so they're like, well, you have to do it. Like, this is an amazing idea. You have to go like, you have to form a company. You have to do this. So we did. We like incorporated the company on Sunday. We had to leave our jobs that Monday. Like it was a whirlwind of 72 hours. Like it's one of these crazy kind of, you know, straight out of, you know, Silicon Valley, the TV show or something, but it actually happened. You know, this time around, it was like, we had years of thinking, like, what market are we going to tackle? How big is it? Who are the incumbents? Like, we weren't thinking about it daily, but, you know, well out indeed, we were certainly idea searching and, and knowing that we were going to do a company. And so it was, it was just very different. Um, I, I think we picked a better market. We've picked a, a more meaningful problem to go tackle this time. You know, at Interviewed as a first time founder, it's like, yeah, like, I, of course, I just want to, I want to win. You know, I, I want to win on my resume. I want to win for our investors. And uh, if you can do that, early and if you can do it really fast i mean I, I highly recommend it like i think that there's also a huge difference you know at at interviewed we only really raised from angels and so the difference and knowing the difference between a 10x return to an angel versus a fund is really critical to understand and really critical to get right and so if you're 10xing people's money in a couple of years you're only going to make friends and those people are going to want to invest again if you're going and playing the game of raising from a you know, a GP that has a bunch of LPs, the fund structure is just very different. Uh, and the investment size is very different and the valuations can get very different. And so uh, there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with, I think, starting a company to make money or starting a company to say, hey, I want, you know, I want a win. Uh, and if you raise from the right people, um, then I, I think you can do that and make everybody happy. But you know, on the current trajectory that we are taking, I think we wanted to first be very sure that there is a $10 billion company here to be built. Uh, and once we were sure of that, then we said, okay, we're going to, you know, as of last month, actually, we're going to go, you know, raise money for it and, um, and just try to find some of the best partners that we can to, you know, help kind of accelerate growth. I love it. Do you think there's a lot of companies that probably should have sold early, kind of like what you did with your startup, but they keep going for that $10 billion number and end up becoming a zero when they should have just sold? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> for sure. And, and this is what's so tricky is people say, you know, they go, oh, you guys sold interviewed for $50 million. You raised $2 million, You sold for $50 million after two years. That is amazing. Like, uh, you know, you must be so happy that you sold when you did. I have no idea, right? Like the numbers, it's so hard to tell. I mean, the, the humble brag here is like when we sold, we were, we were processing a million candidates a year, right? At our current scale, which was great. You know, we we're making millions of dollars in revenue. We were very marginally lightly profitable. Um, we still had most of our venture money in the bank because again, we were pretty stingy. But like today, that company is doing. 200 million candidates a year. So it's literally 200x under Indeed's ownership. Like people say, oh my gosh, this like, if independently valued, this would be a $500 million company, a billion dollar company within Indeed. Like, doesn't that bother you? And it's like, no, because we couldn't have done that without Indeed, right? Like we were plugging into, you know, a $5 billion, you know, revenue business that Indeed already has. We were plugging into, 200 million site visitors, you know, monthly that Indeed already has. So it's, I think it's always impossible to say. And then the other side of that is like, maybe, and, and, and how do you want, you know, how do you want that dice roll to go? Like, do you take, do you take some, you know, a, a small medium sized win off the table after two years? Do you keep running it where five years, 10 years in that could be a $500 million or a billion dollar business, but it also could be a zero. Like, I, I don't know. So 
it's it's different for every founder. I'm amazed at companies, especially founders who come from backgrounds where they have no money uh, and they are willing to go heads down and just go for the big win. I think when you look though at, um, I, I, there's different sets of data that say different things here, but I, I think personally and from seeing a lot of my friends, when you get a small win, right? If you If you can buy a house, if you can provide for your family, if you don't have to worry about money anymore, uh, and you can go do a company for the right reasons uh, or for different reasons, which is like, I just want this thing to be as big as humanly possible. And if somebody gave me, you know, Lasky is a couple months old, but if somebody gave me $50 million today, I would say no, because like this isn't a $50 million company. This is a multi-billion dollar company. It takes money and it takes real courage, I think, to to say no to those types of things. And so when you hear these stories of, oh, you know, uh, you know, Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is could have sold it. You know, 20 million, they said no, 50 million, they said no, and they both built these, you know, billion dollar plus companies. That's amazing. Like if you if you have no um, if you don't have resources, if you don't have money. And so I don't know how company or how founders do it. Um, they definitely do. Uh, and I admire that. But I think certainly second or third time founders, they've not only learned a lot of lessons, but they're no longer thinking about like, you know, I don't care if I don't pay myself a salary for a little while. Like I'm happy to invest everything back into the business. Um, and that becomes super powerful when that compounds. One more question on this, and that was that was fascinating. Um, when you were building, obviously Indeed was already a customer. You said that you already had a relationship with them. So you probably, maybe you knew an acquisition was kind of brewing, but maybe more from a founder psychology, like what did it do to your psyche the moment you got an offer that you looked at yourself in the mirror and you're like, shit, I would take that. Did it screw you up? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of did. The, the actual sequencing was uh, that we got a Series A offer and we mentioned it to Indeed and we said, hey, um, you know, this company, which became a couple of companies, wants to, you know, invest in our Series A. Uh, and, and the you know, then Indeed was saying, well, what if we did the Series A? And I think that that's dangerous. Like, I think taking too much money from a strategic partner as a young company, like, if that's the best offer, then you might as well sell to them. And so there, there was this, you know, competitive uh, environment where we were actually, I think, in earnest trying to decide, do we raise Series A and do we continue to grow this thing? And, and that presents a whole different set of challenges because now we're adding a board member. And, you know, when you're two people, three people in a room and you're the entire board, that's fine. You start adding independent oversight and like all of these things and you actually have to do board meetings and you can't, you know, you, you have to give up a lot to do that. Um, there's a lot of advantages that come with that. But we were like, do you know, if you're if you're raising Series A capital, you're really mentally committing to this for the long haul. And I think that's like fundamentally different than raising a pre-seed or friends and family or an angel round or something. You obviously want to go big, but I think in those phases, the way that I view it as an investor is like, this is an experiment. This is a bet either on the market or on the founders or on some combination of the two. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was very different when you get an offer. I think, you know, Paul Graham at, at YC talks about this a lot. He's written about it a lot, which is like, uh, it does mess you up. I mean, I think it's, it's really hard to go back heads down as a founder. If you're working on a piece of software and some acquirer says, Hey, um, I'll put 10, 20, $25 million in your pocket right now for selling me this thing. I mean, uh, you have to have a lot of motivation and a lot of will and a lot of belief in what you're doing, right? As a, as a, you know, especially as a young founder to go, nah, like, and just go heads down and go back to work. 
And so I think one of the one of the like psychological games that that happens between large companies who are buying small companies is, you know, fifty million dollars, ten million dollars, a hundred million dollars, a billion dollars to a lot of these large companies is is nothing, right? This is this is the cost of doing business. And increasingly, it's the cost of innovation, right? Like large tech companies don't innovate internally for the most part. They buy innovation. And so if you have some unique way of, of tackling your market or of serving customers in your market, then, you know, there's, there's infinite amounts of capital, especially in today's environment, for large companies to go throw around at small companies. But I, I think mentally saying, no, we're not going to take that. I'm going to raise more capital, go heads down and continue to execute, not knowing if tomorrow we're heading into a recession, if tomorrow like venture funding becomes really hard and I've just said no and, you know, something happens with the economy, you know, uh, and and all this stuff, like as, as we saw in, you know, 2007, 2008, 2009, as we saw a little bit in March of this year. I mean, things, unpredictable things can happen very fast and they can snowball out of control. And so in the back of my mind, truthfully, like when we sold in 2017, I was like, we are selling this company at the top of the market. Like 2018, 2019 are not going to be good for venture. Like there's no way that we can continue. We were on this crazy streak from 2009 to 2017. And I don't know anything about cycles, but it's like, this just can't continue. This is insane. Like, you know, uh, the valuations that company people are raising at like, you know, 10, 15 million dollars, like basically pre idea in YC, right? Like, this is wild. You know, I didn't realize that today we'd see that raising at, you know, 25, 30 million dollar valuations. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, 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 again, there were no regrets about it. It was fine. But I think trying to time the market uh, is, is obviously not wise, but it's hard to do. I think psychologically, it's, it's hard to not say, how would this change my life? This would change my life in a massive way if we if we just sold, and I would it wouldn't be my problem anymore. It would be part of my problem, but it's mostly the acquirer's problem, uh, and that's that's a big you know psyche shift for sure. We won't talk about the top of the market, but we now have SPACs taking companies public with no product or no revenue. That feels like the top, but who knows? We'll be here on part two yeah, in five yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, a couple personal questions and we'll bring it home. Um, one, you know, you've been a really, um, on Twitter, you've been very vocal about San Francisco and Silicon Valley is here to stay. Uh, you haven't participated in the shit on that area. What's, you know, in a quick minute, why are you bullish and, and why is Miami uh, maybe not as great as it seems and why is San Francisco and Silicon Valley better than it seems right now? Yeah, uh, so Miami's sinking literally. <laughs> <laughs> into the ocean. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, look, I, uh, I mean, part of part of. Okay, so so there's two parts of this. One is that, you know, I, I think it's funny. I think you had uh, you had Michael Girdley on uh, a, few, a few episodes ago, a handful of episodes oh, ago, and, and he lived in 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 San Francisco for a while, right? And and I was listening to that and kind of laughing, and and you know, he was saying, oh, I lived there in a in a time when it was even less desirable than it is now. So look, I, I think part of this is one. I think geography stuff is mostly pointless to argue about, but it's great Twitter engagement. And so I'll, I'll continue to do it and continue to, uh, you know, get, get meme karma from posting about San Francisco. You know, the second thing is I don't live in San Francisco, right? I live, uh, you know, I, I've been to San Francisco exactly twice in like the last year and a half. So uh, I'm hugely bullish on it. Like I, I, I really am deep down. I do think it's, it's funny that like people say like, oh, you live in this like shithole. It's like, 
I live in Danville. It's an hour east. It's great. We've got cows in our backyard. It probably looks pretty similar to like, you know, Fort Worth or something. It's like, you know, we live like on a ranch. We've got trees. We got a pool. This is not San Francisco. It's funny, but uh, I, I do think it is still, it's a huge center of gravity. Like there's, there's no denying it. And I think the, um, the Miami voices and the, uh, the Austin voices and stuff, they can get pretty loud when, you know, I, I, the couple times that I go to San Francisco and all day when I sit on the phone talking to Series A, Series B companies who are, you know, who I've invested in or who are clients of ours now, you know, a huge percentage of the time, they're maybe not in San Francisco, but they're around the Bay Area. And so, look, I, I think long story short, it will continue to be a major center of gravity. The last anecdote here, which, which I'm amazed by, is like when I moved from the South Bay near Palo Alto to San Francisco in 2011, I was renting a two-bedroom apartment for, I think, like $3,100 a month in 2011, uh, which was crazy. Even coming from LA, like those prices were crazy. But now that like my first San Francisco apartment, a two bedroom apartment is going for $2,500 a month. And so, you know, if I, as a 22 year old coming into a city where there was tons of opportunity, you know, the, the reality is you have lots of people who are, you know, younger or uh, who are looking for a lifestyle change, who are making these, you know, $100,000, $300,000, $500,000 jobs. You know, the rents do not affect them, but if they do, and if house, housing prices do affect them, well, those in many areas are below 2011 prices. Like you are getting like recession era pricing in San Francisco right now. And so this will create like a whole new wave. Uh, this will create a whole new wave of interest. Um, there are still, you know, massive tech companies that are headquartered there. Many of those will return in some form to partial, you know, office reopenings, and it'll be a super desirable area. Will you have to deal with crime? Will you have to deal with you know, a bunch of shit, totally. Like tents have always been a part of San Francisco, right? Like drunken disorderly, robberies. Like, do do I agree with like a lot of the politics happening there? No, not at all. It's one of the reasons I live in Danville. Do I agree that like, you know, we could do a lot better job on kind of a local level with uh with you know hiring the right government officials? Yeah. If if you're willing to put up with all of those things, then it's a great place to live. Uh and I think many people are. I love it. All right. Three more questions. If you were CEO, we, we've met through Twitter. We have lots of Twitter friends. Twitter is probably the most under-monetized. Um, I feel like there's so much value to be tapped. If you were CEO for Twitter uh, for the next year, what would you do? What are some key things you would do immediately? Yeah, I think um, I've, I've said this before, but um, you know, Twitter DMs are amazing if you use them correctly, both in terms of sending DMs and being open to DMs and filtering them. It's, it's like this amazing thing. DMs are terrible from like an architecture and engineering perspective. Like they just, it's this, it's this source where I see like all of my Twitter friends and everybody talks about like all the values in the DMs, you know, and it's true. Like our business has gotten, you know, seven of our 10 first customers through DMs. We've made hires literally through Twitter DMs. I've made investments through DMs. They're great. They're like a hundred X better than LinkedIn and 10 X better than email in terms of value. But they're terrible. You can't search them. They're, you can't navigate. You can't set up filtering. Um, and so if there was a real effort with like 10 people at Twitter really hyper-focused on DMs, it feels like a fixable problem. I think number two is spam. Like I think the, you know, if anybody from Twitter is listening to this, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think that you all on the spam and fraud side 
like maybe you're like OKRs are to actually create spam and fraud uh, <laughs> because like the problem has just gotten out of control in the last like three years. Uh, I don't understand. I mean, like everybody, like the fact that every major you know tech company has like figured this out and. Um, you know, you go to anybody's, you know, any one of our Twitter friends, you know, tweet threads. And at the bottom, there's like 10 fake Elon Musk accounts doing like <laughs> Ethereum giveaways. It's like, uh, you know, I, I have some like 16 year old interns that can solve this problem pretty fast. And so that's pretty crazy. And then I think the third thing, which is is quite controversial, but I don't know, like I, I would love some, maybe it's a version of Twitter or like a list version or something, but I think the idea of like real name only Twitter or like paid access only Twitter, something that's like so minimal, like you're spending like a penny per month, but the simple act of having to put a credit card down, like adds trust and verification to the the system. Like, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if I'm, if I'm tired of meme accounts or if I'm, you know, tired of these like alt accounts or if they're just not adding as much value or as much humor as they used to. But I think like within real estate Twitter, within VC Twitter, like there's a number of people that are using real names. And I think those conversations always end up being higher value and, and also in many cases funnier. So I, I have no problems with a lot of the, the like, you know, kind of alt accounts. But I think it's an easy way when you look at like the garbage comments that happen on some of these otherwise great threads, like all of the garbage comments are coming from. Uh, you know, Gregory 067423PP012. And it's like, all right, like this is either a bot or a troll or whatever. But if you got rid of those in some meaningful way, um, I think it would be a much more interesting place to kind of contribute and uh, and hear about what's on people's minds. I love it. Well, you should be CEO uh, of Twitter. I agree with with all those things, especially the the penny a day or a dollar a month or whatever it is to just get rid of all the, the spammers. Um, all right. Do you have anything in your childhood or growing up, may, maybe not a moment, but something that you did that uh, that you look back on and go like, I wouldn't be here where I am today had this not happened kind of early in my life? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. I think a lot of this is, um, you know, things things spiral quickly. I mean, I think that there's like there's like the creative side, which is um, I, I played a lot of music growing up. I went to college on a music scholarship. And I think that that part is, is like under discussed, like Jessica Livingston is one of the founders of, of YC has this great book hackers or, or, you know, she, she talks a lot about like founders at work. And within that book, uh, you, you see all of these like founder stories and, and you get to actually see some of like the, like, these are real people with real families and real hobbies and, and real passion. And then, you know, Paul Graham has this like, you know, hackers and painters concept. And I think it's it's fascinating. It's like, I think within within technology, it's one of these things that at the time I was I was probably very like creative frust creatively frustrated growing up where uh, I loved playing instruments and I loved drumming, but I never wanted to be like a rock drummer and I always wanted to make money, but I had no idea like how one thing would lead to another. And I think in retrospect, it's like you kind of just have to go with the flow, like going to the school that I went to and playing music there and then uh, letting that snowball into my first internship, which turned into a real job where I met the founder of my first, you know, startup ad and moved to San Francisco. Like, I think it actually does go back from just always trying to have this like creative outlet um, around around music. Um, and probably like on the on the real estate side, like the way I got into real estate tech was a little bit that 
uh, growing up, my, my dad was in uh, construction project management for a huge construction company. And I would get to go see like job sites and stuff like that. And in my mind, I was just like, I want to get into, you know, real estate development and I want to get into construction and throughout college, like my internships were focused on uh, real estate development and then design and then private equity. And so I kind of jumped into three very different, like purposeful segments around real estate to say like, this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Uh, and it was totally accidental. Like I got a great real estate private equity job out of college and I hated every second of it. And I was like, oh, well, all that was like a huge waste. And I have no idea what I want to do with my life. And it was again, through that job where it's like, you know, that's where I met somebody who uh, was, you know, doing this tech thing up in San Francisco. And I moved from Los Angeles to, to San Francisco, you know, over a decade ago. And and that's been, you know, hugely positive. But I think there's always, there's always like the back of my mind, which is like, you know, maybe someday again, like I'll, I'll get back into like big machinery and like want to, uh, you know, work construction or something someday. Don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, no, I don't all right. <laughs> you know, you, you've got, you've got a good, all right. Last one. If there was a billboard on the busiest highway in, is it Danville? We'll just pretend Danville's a really busy spot. What would you put on that billboard for the world to see every day? Stop buying Oracle and SAP products. No, I don't know. I don't know. That's just what came to mind. I love it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I Something like it. that. We'll call it that. All right. How can people reach you on Twitter? Uh, I am Chris J. Bakke. Uh, so that's B-A-K-K-E at Twitter. Uh, you can also email me. I love hearing from people and just chatting over email. So it's Chris, C-H-R-I-S at Lasky, L-A-S-K-I-E dot C-O. Um, either one is great. Awesome, man. Thank you so much uh, for the time today. This was This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Ford Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.